Let's pray. Father God, it's so good to be here tonight, this time at this moment. Thank you for every person that's here. And already we sense your nearness, your closeness to us, and your love for us. I pray for every person here, those who have known you for many years, that they would know you even more and better tonight. Lord, for others that are searching, seeking, maybe not even sure if you're real, that you would also speak to them tonight. We know that you are always with us, but thank you for those moments when we sense your nearness and your closeness. As we unpack this intriguing story, uh, I pray that you would teach us through it what you're like, what your work in the world is like, and what you're doing in our hearts and lives. In our time, in Jesus' name, everyone said amen. Amen. Well, we've just heard the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And uh, here at Door of Hope, uh, doing a series uh, on the parables beginning last week and continuing tonight. And so it's a great joy and privilege for me to be here. Thank you, Steve, for your warm welcome. And uh, really enjoying being here at Door of Hope. Uh, parables are stories. They're pictures. They're illustrations. Uh, Jesus used them a lot. And they're designed to tell us what God is like what his kingdom or his work in the world is like, and what you and I, uh, as his followers, are called to be and do. Uh, this parable of the weed and the weeds is unique. It's the only gospel, Matthew's gospel, that records this parable. Uh, it's from Matthew 13, verses 36 to 43. Thank you, Dorothy, for that creative reading of this parable. Uh, it's one of only three parables that Jesus actually interprets for us. If you read a little later in Matthew 13, he actually takes seven of the items in the parable and he tells us what they mean. The farmer, he says, is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are God's people doing God's will in the world. The enemy is the devil. He's the agricultural sabotager in this story, the criminal trying to disrupt the farmer's work. Uh, the harvest is the end of the age. Uh, the harvesters are the angels. The weeds are the children of the evil one. Weeds in the first century were obnoxious uh, Weeds that were often indistinguishable from wheat in the early stages they actually looked very similar until uh, later on. So the weeds are the children of the evil one. A anyone heard of the Left Behind series? Anyone kind of got into that? What, what's interesting in this parable, if it's anything to do with le uh, end times, is the weeds are bound and taken away and the wheat are left behind. <laughs> Just a thought. Maybe there's an idea for another series for somebody. <laughs> So, Jesus gives us an interpretation of those seven items. We're not sure who the workers are. Maybe they're the disciples. Uh, there's some other factors that he doesn't interpret. As you look at a parable, uh, as these stories, many of them in Matthew and also the other Gospels, a good thing to do as you start thinking about what does this mean <laughs> and how does it apply to me today is to ask yourself what's the question? question what's the question ryan we're going to bring that next slide up now to the left there you might be going what in the world is that do we have any puzzle lovers here anyone love putting jigsaw puzzles together quite a few of you have any of you heard of a wasgidge puzzle okay a few of you are nodding your head the rest of you are going what in the world are we talking about wasgidge is the word jigsaw pronounced backwards and in the United Kingdom, the number one puzzle seller 
is this company that puts out these Wasgidge puzzles. And what's unique about these puzzles, how many know when you get a puzzle, normally the picture's on the box? And you've got the picture on the box, and as you put the puzzle pieces together, you're matching the picture. Well, in the Wasgidge puzzles, that's not the puzzle. You're actually not looking at the puzzle. You have to use your imagination and you have to put yourself into this lady's perspective and ask yourself, what in the world is she looking at? How many want to go and buy a what? We've got Wasgidge puzzle. No, no. <laughs> this is another whole... Have you ever done one? Yeah? This is another whole level of puzzle um, making is to actually imagine, okay, what is going on in this room and what could this picture be? So I use this as an illustration because as we look at the parable, I think what we've actually got to do is go, what is the question that Jesus is addressing through this story? What question is he trying to answer? And there's a bunch of theories. Some people say, well, look, Matthew's writing to a mixed community of Jews who've come to faith in Jesus, but they're still going to the synagogue. They're still in Judaism. Should we kind of separate? Now we're following Jesus. Should we kind of leave the synagogue? And maybe he's answering that question. Other people go, well, it's answering the question of what do we do with wrong or evil in the church? Should we find all the heretics and kill them? Now we laugh, but if you study church history, church history is strewn with people finding weeds and killing them. And unfortunately, Protestants did this as much as Catholics. Uh, some people think maybe this is uh, about, hey, hey, no, no, don't kill anybody. <laughs> Just kind of wait and it'll sort out. Maybe that's the question. Uh, another suggestion is maybe Jesus is giving a defense for the kind of people he's hanging around. Jesus spent a lot of time with people who were considered the riffraff of society. Sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, who the Pharisees probably saw as weeds. And so maybe Jesus is defending the people he's hanging around. Or, or, or maybe this is a metaphor of the sin and, the, and the, the good and the evil inside of us. So we've all got a little bit of saint and sinner and uh, we don't want to ignore the good. We don't want to be blind to the bad. These are some of the uh, kind of ideas that people have grappled with as to what Jesus is trying to say. And so as I've studied this parable, I think all of those have potential applications, but I think the most likely answer to the question is that people are asking in Jesus' time, how can the kingdom be present when there is still so much wrong in the world? I think that's the question people are asking. Jesus, you're the Messiah, you're the King, the kingdom's here. How can God's work be here? How can the kingdom be here when there's still so much wrong in the world? This is a bit of a mystery. The kingdom is present, but it's like a field with wheat and weeds growing together until the final day of separation. Jesus himself says the field is the world, not the church. So this is not a parable about the church alone. It's got a bigger frame of reference. This is about the entire world, and Jesus is giving us a picture of what God's up to in the world. And so based on that, I want to make a few reflections on the parable that hopefully will be helpful for you today. Like all Jesus' teaching, there's multiple layers, multiple applications. Uh, let's look at a couple together tonight. Number one, the first reflection is I think Jesus is teaching us that God has a plan and He is working it out 
over time. And this is a call to be patient. Who loves patience? I like that, you know, it's like that prayer, God, give me patience and I want it now. Um, It's a challenge to be patient. God does have a plan and he's working it out over time. You know, if we just stop right now and think about the world we live in. I mean, we live in a world with tragedies, with accidents. We've got a, um, a typhoon, or what do they call them in America? Cyclone hitting America right now. There's uh, all kinds of uh, violence and wars going on and injustice and tyrants and bullies and good people are often suffering and evil people are often prospering. And if you're honest, you probably ask, God, what are you up to? But like, where is God? And what in the world is he doing? Uh, Back in the first century, his disciples were going, okay, Jesus, so you're the king and the kingdom is here, but why are the Romans still in charge? I thought the Messiah was going to overthrow the evil Roman Empire and create a pure community. How can the kingdom be here when none of these things are happening? Even John's cousin, John the Baptist, sent a little message to Jesus, a little text, a little email. Hey, Jesus. Are you really the one, or are we waiting for someone else? Can you feel the doubt? And you know what? It's okay to doubt. Doubt's not unbelief. In fact, doubt is often the door to a strong faith. These are real questions. If the kingdom's here now, then why is the world as it is? And so in this parable, I think Jesus is teaching us God is in control, just like the farmer. God is in control. He's not ignorant of what's happening in the world. He knows what's going on. He's got a plan. He's working. It starts small, like a mustard seed. It's often subversive. No one's really noticing. But just because there's still evil in the world does not mean that the kingdom is not at work. How many know God's not in a hurry? (laughs) Man, if I was God, this thing would have been wrapped up a long time ago. (laughs) God is not in a hurry. Unlike us and the workers. The workers are, come on, can we pull out the weeds? And we can be a bit like the workers. We just want to kind of wrap it all up. But God often delays his judgment because of his compassion. Because of his compassion, he's still at work in the world. And so for you and I, today, there's some waiting to do. Can we look at the world with all that's going on and and trust God and be patient? The world is not as God desires it to be. The farmer was not happy with the weeds. It's not as God intends it to be. But in the end, good will win. Justice will triumph. God's plan will be accomplished. See, you and I live in this tension. If you've done any theology, theologians call it, we live between the now and the not yet. You know, now, because of Jesus' work on the cross, how many know Jesus conquered sin on the cross? Amen. But have you noticed sin hasn't kind of left the world? How many know on the cross, Jesus took our sicknesses? He did. By his stripes, we were healed. But how many know not yet has sickness completely left the earth? How many know on the cross, Jesus conquered Satan? Come on, he conquered Satan. But how many know not yet is Satan bound and in that lake of fire? On the cross, Jesus conquered death. But death 
is the last enemy to be destroyed. Can you see the paradox? We live between this tension of what has already happened, what now is a reality because of Jesus' first coming, but what not yet has been completed and won't be completed until Jesus returns. And so we live between those two amazing historical events, Jesus' first coming, his second coming. Now this is all propositional truth, but not yet have we seen the completion of God's plan. And so I think this parable is teaching us to live with ambiguity, with paradox. It's only temporary. It's all going to sort out. And you know, it's a bit like that in our lives, <laughs> in our individual lives. God also has a plan. He's at work. It's not finished yet. But Philippians 1, 6 says, God who began, everyone say began, a good work in you will complete it. So it's the same with our individual lives. We are part of God's plan, God's workmanship. In another place, uh, Paul actually says, you are saved by grace, not through works. You are God's workmanship. Uh, the Greek word is poema, poem, work of art. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're a work of art. Not a piece of work. Not a piece of work. A work of art. And so you and I are also God's work, and we need to be patient. I, I think that, that that's the first reflection I would get from this parable. God's got a plan. He's working, and it's not there yet, and it's a call to be patient. Number two, second reflection, is there is an enemy at work in the world. An enemy at work in the world, and this is a challenge to be alert or awake. In this story, we see an enemy coming alongside God's work, seeking to disrupt it. This teaches us that not all actions in the world are God's actions. There are many forces at work in the world. Jesus clearly says the enemy is the devil. Uh, the devil is actually prominent in Jesus' ministry. He's there at the beginning, tempting Jesus. He's the adversary. When he left Jesus, it said he left him until a more opportune time. Uh, Jesus called him the evil one. Here in this story, he's the spoiler. He, he, he invents nothing. He creates nothing. He just seeks to destroy the good that God is doing. And so this parable teaches us not to be surprised by evil in the world. Uh, it, it hasn't been removed yet. It won't be removed fully till Jesus returns. Uh, we should still fight against evil, but we've got to be aware there is an enemy at work in our world. And so this should make us awake, alert. Uh, again, I think we've got to avoid extremes when it comes to the devil and the demonic and spiritual warfare. We should avoid the extremes of preoccupation and the, avoids of the extreme of ignorance. Uh, every church, not here in Tasmania, but back in Melbourne, every church has what I'd call a demonic Dave. You know, demonic Dave, it's like, oh, there's a black cat there today. The enemy's on the prowl, you know, or it's an overcast day. There's a spirit of oppression over the city, you know, or someone coughs. Come out in Jesus' name. Or someone's a little cool. Watch your back. Watch your back. You know, every church has a demonic Dave. Apologies if your name is Dave. Uh, who everything is the devil and it's almost like they worship the devil more than God. But every church also has a skeptical Susan. <laughs> Apologies to any Susans in the room who think that everything has a natural or psychological explanation. 
and are not willing to even admit that there are spiritual forces. When I was a kid, there was an artist called Keith Green. Anyone remember Keith Green? And he sang a song, No One Believes in Me Anymore. Song from the devil's perspective. My job keeps getting easier because no one believes in me anymore. And so we want to avoid preoccupation. We're, we're almost more focused on the darkness than the light, but we also want to avoid ignorance where we actually, we're not even awake to the fact that there is an enemy at work in the world. L listen to these Bible verses. The Lord's Prayer includes, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's part of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, don't lead us into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. Uh, Ephesians 4.26, don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. The word foothold means an access point. It's like locking up your home tonight before you leave and leaving the window open. You've actually given an opportunity. It's all right, you didn't. Uh, you, it, it, you've given an opportunity for someone to break in. Paul's saying when you don't resolve your anger, you've just given an access point for the enemy to work in your life. Ephesians 6, 10 to 18. Be strong in the Lord and His mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you can stand firm against the strategies, the schemes of the devil. For we're not fly, fighting against one another, flesh and blood. We're fighting against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. James 4, 7. Humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 1 Peter 5, 8 to 9, stay alert, watch out, for your great enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. He's not a roaring lion, he's like one, looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in the faith. We can see all of these verses are teaching us what's the message of this parable is there is an enemy at work in the world and we need to be Alert. And so in every situation, it's good to ask yourself, what is God up to and what could the enemy be up to? Because both forces, not equal forces, but both are at work. And it's good in our own lives just to pause sometimes and say, where am I vulnerable? If you were the devil, imagine a strategy to get at you. It's a very interesting exercise. Where are you most vulnerable? I know for me, sometimes it's busyness. I can be so busy doing many, many good things that I haven't taken time to pray. That's a subtle way the enemy gets at me or relying on my own strengths or discouragement. You know, even pastors get discouraged. There's lots of different ways. There's a funny story uh, of the devil selling off a lot of tools and uh, it was a bit of a fire sale, excuse the pun. And uh, there was this one tool that was really old and used and uh, someone, it was really expensive. It was the most expensive item. Someone said, why? why? That's so expensive. What is that? And he said, discouragement. It's been one of my most powerful tools. Uh, Steve and I have a common friend in Keith Farmer. And Keith Farmer, um, for many years, mentored about 100 pastors around Australia. And in the last uh, part of his mentoring time, he'd always go, where, where could the enemy uh, get at you right now? Where are you most vulnerable? And he told me, he says, you know, the number one answer was discouragement. It's pretty surprising. You'd think it'd be something else, you know. See, most of us in this room are tempted to go rob a bank or be a terrorist or be drug dealers, right? <laughs> most of us. <laughs> but I tell you what, subtle things like discouragement can settle in 
and really stop God's work in our life. Remember, as a, as a, a young leader getting involved in church, I actually had a, I had a dream one night. I haven't had lots of vivid dreams like this, but I, I dreamt I was in a field, and it was this huge field, and I, saw, I literally saw four dark figures uh, at each side of the field. And I, I just felt this overwhelmed kind of uh, feeling. And I remember waking up in the morning and had this impression that these were my four enemies. One was discouragement, one was fear, one was apathy, and the other one was doubt or unbelief. And it was like I felt God was telling me, this is your field, this is your inheritance, but the enemy wants to come in and stop what I do through your life. And so for you to overcome, you've got to push back the enemies of fear and of discouragement and of uh, apathy and of doubt and unbelief. And so I don't, know, I, don't know, whoa, I don't know what yours are, but the enemy is at work. And uh, Jesus said this, um, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come to give you life. See, God's plan for your life is life to the full. But there's an enemy that loves to kill, steal, kill, and destroy. And his greatest power is deception. How many know the thief doesn't knock on your door and go, oh, excuse me, uh, I don't mean to bother you, I just want to steal a few things, I won't be long? <laughs> no, 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 the enemy always comes when you're not prepared. And so not to overemphasize this point, but to simply say this parable is teaching us there's an enemy at work in the world. We need to be awake, on guard, alert. Everyone said amen? Amen. amen. Uh, let me give you two more, two more reflections. Number three, uh, God alone is the judge of all people. I think this parable is teaching us God is the judge of all people, and it's a challenge to be humble. See, throughout the biblical story, there's kind of these two lines. There's the godly and the ungodly, the righteous and the unrighteous, the insiders, the outsiders, and us humans have debated over the years around things like election, like does God choose who's in and out, or do we get to choose it? Is salvation for everyone or just for a few? What about those who have never heard? Some people People are exclusivists, others are inclusivists, others are pluralists. What about heaven? What about hell? I know you know the answers to all those questions. But there's been a lot of debate in Bible colleges and over living rooms and uh, in, in various scenarios of, of who's in and who's out. And I'm here to tell you the answer to that. Not really. This is my belief. I think God actually wants everyone to be saved. John 3.16, God so loved the world. It's a pretty big word. That he gave his only beloved son, that whoever. Anyone here a whoever? Whoever believes. And later on, Paul said, God doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to respond. I'd be bold enough to say God's a hopeful universalist. Ooh. In other words, I think God's desire, God's heart, is that everyone be in a relationship with Him. And we've got to believe He's working to at least make that a reality. Well, our choice, our response to God's grace has a big factor. C.S. Lewis once said, hell is locked from the inside. It's an interesting thought. Maybe Hell will be for people who actually say, I don't want you, God. I don't want your grace in my life. I don't think whether we're in or out is by birth. 
It's not by faith. It's not by our works. It's by our response to the grace of God. But only God knows the human heart. He will judge, not us. It's not for me to say who's in and who's out. Uh, we need to realize the wheat and the weeds look exactly the same. Agriculturally, they looked exactly the same till right near the end. Time alone would reveal where's the wheat, where's the weeds. The true nature eventually came out. And if you look at other parables by Jesus, he indicates that there's going to be some surprises about who's in and who's out. And so although we should discern the fruit of a person's life, it's not our job to judge who's in, who's out, who's saved, who's not saved. Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of heretic hunting still going on today. You might have heard the funny story about this man walking across the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and there was someone about to jump. And he goes, what are you doing? Don't jump. Don't you believe in God? person said, well, yes, I do. He says, oh, that's fantastic. So are you a Buddhist, a Muslim, a Christian? He says, I'm a Christian, me too. That's, that, that's amazing. So are you churches of Christ, Baptist, uh, Catholic, uh, Protestant? He says, oh, I, I, I'm Protestant. Oh, Protestant, me too, you know. Um, so, you know, are you uh, charismatic, Pentecostal, or, 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 or or, or, or not. He says, oh, I'm Pentecostal. Me too. That's amazing. Uh, are you initial evidence or third wave? He goes, initial evidence. Me too. That's amazing. He then goes, so are you premillennial, postmillennial, or amillennial? And the guy said, I'm premillennial. Hearing that, he pushed him over and said, die, you heretic. <laughs> now, it, it, it's only a joke. And if, if you didn't understand all that, don't even worry. <laughs> but it does evidence a little tendency we have to think that we're in and everyone else is out. You know, Jesus' last prayer was that we would all be one. Did you know that there are 39,000 Christian denominations in the world? Not churches, denominations. And they all believe they have the correct statement of faith. And everyone else is wrong, right? So I think it's just a warning to us. This parable is a bit of a warning to us. D don't judge before the time. God al alone knows the human heart. And you know what? We're all a bit of, of a mixture of wheat and weeds. I like what Tony Coppola says. Love the sinner and hate your own sin. <laughs> it's a really good line. Love the sinner and hate your own sin. And so when it comes to who's in heaven, hell, good things to talk about, but only God knows the human heart. And even this whole idea of judgment, I think we've got to avoid extremes in caricaturing God. God is not this sadistic monster who just loves to punish and torture people. That's an extreme. He's also not this lenient grandparent who just keeps giving chocolates to the kids even though they've been misbehaving all day. Come on. I think we've got to avoid both extremes. God is supremely loving, wise, holy, just, and true. He's all of those things together. And so this parable is just teaching us to not judge too soon, to just let things play out, and God alone knows the human heart. Final reflection this parable is teaching us, I think, is we are all called to partner with God's purpose. And this is a challenge to be fruitful. It's interesting, earlier in this chapter, 
The seed is the Word of God. Remember the parable of the farmer and the seed? He sows the seed and there's various responses to the seed. So the seed is God's Word or the message. In this parable, you and I become the seed. The seed is actually not the Word. It's not the message. It's not the Gospel. The seed in this parable are God's people. What a profound thought to realize if you're a follower of Jesus, He has planted you in this city. You are his seed. He's planted you in the world. See, the Great Commission is not just an ethnic commission of going to all nations, ethnos, people groups, and often in missions we're focused on reaching different unreached people groups. It's also social. Going to all the world is the Greek word cosmos, from which we get the idea of the social reality, the social order. And so society is made up of education and politics and sports and arts and entertainment and all of these spheres of society. And so we're not only to go into all the various people groups, we're to go into every sector of society and be good news and so God has strategically placed each one of you as his seed and so we need to avoid apathy that says oh well God will just sort it all out we also want to avoid this messianic complex that we're going to fix the world and rid it of evil ourselves but in between those extremes we need to realize God is working in the world in his field and you and I are called to be a part of his work. I love to see mission as God's work. And uh, we just simply get to join him in his work of mission. I, I learned this uh, quite profoundly a few years ago. Um, we had an amazing story in our church. There was a lady named Bev uh, living in our local community. And uh, Bev wasn't a churchgoer, didn't have a relationship with God. She kind of went to a a Catholic school as a young girl, but hadn't really followed on in any kind of uh, real faith for herself. And so she was uh, middle-aged, working at a job, and as part of her job, they had a seminar that they went to. And uh, the seminar was kind of talking about breaking out of your comfort zone and doing something a bit different and, uh, you know, taking a risk was kind of this motivational seminar from her work. And uh, Bev bit of a, a shy person, a bit introverted, a bit, bit quiet, and so yeah, she found the seminar quite challenging. Anyway, uh, come Saturday morning, there was a knock at the door, and it was some Mormons doing their rounds through the community, promoting people for their religion. Again, Bev would normally not invite people in, she didn't know, but the seminar said take a risk, so she invited them in, had a bit of afternoon tea with them. Well, they invited her to their... Um, temple meeting on Sunday morning. Again, she wouldn't normally do that, but the seminar said take a rest. She said, I'll come. So Sunday morning, she got up, she got dressed, and she's driving down High Street Road in the west, eastern suburbs of Melbourne. She drives down High Street Road. When she gets to Kathy's Lane, instead of turning right to the Mormon temple up on the hill, she accidentally turns left and comes into City Life Church. <laughs> and so she's walking around the foyer of our church, and she's asking for Elder So-and-So. Where's Elder so-and-so? Where's Elder so-and-so? Well, no one's heard of Elder so-and-so. Eventually, one of our hospitality team realized she was looking for the Mormon church up the road and said, no, uh, you're looking for we have to train our hospitality people better. But anyway, uh, <laughs> so, so she got back in her car 
and she drove up the road to the, to the Mormon temple. Well, she's late now, but she sees elder so-and-so, so she thinks, oh, this will be good, but he's really annoyed. You're late. You were supposed to be here, and he treats her pretty rudely. So she comes in. She sits down, and after about 10 minutes, she's annoyed. She thinks, I don't like this. This man's treated me rudely. He's been grumpy. So she got up, and she went back to her car, and she drove down the road. She came back to City Life. And she kept coming Sunday after Sunday. After about four or five, six weeks, Bev came to a point where she committed her life to Jesus Christ. Now, what I love about that story is the only hero is God. Just think about this story. God is using a motivational seminar, not a pastor, not a preacher, a motivational seminar saying, do something different. Take a risk. God is using a wrong turn on a Sunday morning. God is using a grumpy Mormon elder. <laughs> God bless him. To get Bev in a place where she knows there's a God that loves her. And you know what? I've got to believe Launceston is full of Bevs. And you know what? Right now, God is working in their life. And you and I have just got to intersect just got to be there at those moments, as the, at, at those opportunities. We don't have to do the whole work ourselves. We've just got to be good seed where you've been placed within our world. S such, such a powerful, powerful challenge for all of us. And so these parables, these kingdom stories tell us what God's like. They tell us what his work in the world is like and what you and I are called to be and do. And so uh, for reflections... God's, God's at work in this world. It might be going a little slower than most of us want. It's a call to be patient with yourself, with others, and with our world. Secondly, there's an enemy at work. Let's, let's not be over-occupied with the enemy, but let's not be ignorant of his devices. Be alert, be awake, be on guard. Thirdly, let's be humble. It's easy to label people. You know, it's interesting to see how Jesus treated people who others thought <laughs> were not really worth much. Uh, I love the story of Zacchaeus. You know, Zacchaeus was probably the most hated man in town. See, tax collectors were people who'd betrayed their own people, who were collecting taxes from their people for the Roman government and getting rich in the process. So everyone hated Zacchaeus. Jesus rocks into town, and you know the story. He goes, hey, Zacchaeus, let's do lunch today. C can you hear the comments? It's like, does Jesus know who he is? And why isn't he having lunch with me? Can you hear the rumors? And there, Jesus is having lunch with Zacchaeus. Somewhere in the middle of lunch, Zacchaeus stands up. There's no organ playing. There's no preacher. There's, the, there's no let's bow our heads. Zacchaeus stands up and goes, Today, I'm giving half of my goods to the poor. Today, I'm going to pay back anyone I've ripped off four times. How many know he'd probably ripped off people if he's actually paying them back? <laughs> and Jesus goes, today, salvation has come to this house. Question, did Zacchaeus change and then Jesus had lunch with him? No, no. Jesus had lunch with Zacchaeus just as he was. And that grace changed him. See, the Pharisee's attitude was, when you get your act together, then you can come and hang with us. Jesus' attitude was, come as you are, and let my grace change you. 
I was uh, in the foyer of our church a few years ago. I met a young man, hadn't seen him before. I said, how are you visiting today? How are you going? He goes, yeah, I, I used to be a Muslim. Now I'm an atheist, but I enjoyed your talk today. <laughs> I think he was trying to shock me. And I just smiled. I said, great to meet you. Muslims and atheists are welcome at our church. I was a bit taken back. About six weeks later, uh, I was in the foyer again, and, and I saw him. I said, hey, you're still here. He had a big smile. He says, I'm a Christian now. I said, fantastic. Christians are welcome at our church. <laughs> what would it be if we just treat everybody as Jesus would? And don't try to label who's in, who's out. Just treat them as someone whom God loves and be good news wherever we go this week. Everyone said amen? amen? Amen. I don't know what time I'm supposed to finish, but it kind of feels like a good point here. So, <laughs> so I'm going to pray and we'll just land this together. Thanks, Ben and the team. Uh, Jesus, these stories are, are amazing. Um, we can kind of read over them and go, what was that? But if we just kind of slow down and pause and reflect and go... What, what question is Jesus answering? And maybe like today, people were going, how can God's kingdom be here when things just still aren't all together? And so I pray today for us that you would teach us to trust your plan when it's not quite together. Help us to be patient. Help us to be awake and alert to the strategies of the enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy our potential yet you've come to give us life. Forgive us for labeling people, for walking by the Zacchaeuses, maybe in the office, maybe in the school, the others, the marginalized, the outcast. Jesus, you actually <laughs> move towards those kind of people. May we do the same. And may we be good news wherever we are this week. Help us to be the seed. And as we bump into the bevs of this world that you're reaching out to, may we join you in your work of mission. May we be a people zealous of good works. <laughs> Jesus, wherever you went, you left a trail of people that had been helped and healed and encouraged. May we do the same. May we be a blessing wherever we go. And Lord, for anyone here today that isn't sure you're real, Lord, may the songs we sang earlier about your love, may we lean towards you tonight and know your love not just as a song but as a personal experience that i am loved and we can experience that love and share that love wherever we go in jesus wonderful name everyone said amen amen